before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. My returning guest is my friend Peter Zion, who's graced the podcast and my original Humanar series a couple of times, each time offering what was an incredibly thought-provoking assessment of the state of the world from a geopolitical perspective. Now, Peter's latest book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, is a fantastic addition to his previous volumes, The Accidental Superpower, The Absent Superpower, and Disunited Nations. And if you haven't read those books yet, I honestly can't recommend them highly enough. With the world in such turmoil, I thought it was time to get Peter's updated thoughts on the big picture. Uh, I want to talk to him about the changing nature of the Ukraine war and, importantly, how demographics will likely reshape the world in, in barely imaginable ways in the coming quarter of a century or so. Buckle up, folks. This one, I guarantee you, will have you rethinking plenty of assumptions you thought were pretty solid. So without any more ado, please enjoy my conversation with Peter Zion. Peter, welcome back to the podcast. It's so good to see you always, and uh, you're, you're looking sickeningly healthy. <laughs> I do my best. Excellent. Well, listen, um, the subject at hand is the world, as always, <laughs> and the various different ways in which it's conspiring to confuse the hell out of all of us. Um, but the, the time is perfect because you've just published The End of the World is Just the Beginning a couple of months ago. So, so first of all, how's the reception been? Um, because I thought the book was excellent. You very kindly sent me a copy prior to publication, and it really is Another tour de force. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's, it's been a wild ride from the, the start. For this one, what's the best way to phrase this? We started working on this about five years ago after we had a lot of client work that was forward-looking into various supply chain disruptions. So, you know, long before COVID, back in those weird days when the sun shone and everyone was in a good mood. Uh, but it finally came together. And we made the bestseller list, and we're on the bestseller list for audio, too. And it's this silky smooth voice, in case that's attractive. <laughs> uh, but the reception in the halls of power has actually been even more interesting. Because we deal with questions that governments, as a rule, don't bother with. And now that we're facing simultaneous manufacturing, energy, financial, and agricultural crises, all of a sudden, there's a lot of interest from a lot of places that normally don't give me the time of day uh, to hear about more. So it has been keeping us very, very busy on this side of the pond. And, wh- and what's what's been the kind of main point that's interested these folks? Because I, you know, I've always found your work to be simultaneously incredibly accessible and also going into places that you, you don't normally get a chance to hear people discuss. And it, you know, it kind of strikes me that policymakers the world over seem to somehow have been caught flat-footed by a lot of what's going on now, and, and they seem to be catching up. Did you get a sense of that? And if so, where are they trying hardest to catch up? Uh, you definitely hit it there. That's exactly what's going on. Uh, the issue is globalization. Uh, when the globalized system was created after World War II, the whole idea is we didn't have to worry about these issues. The Americans would look after global security, and that meant global transport would be fine. And if global transport would be fine, then it would be easy to get materials and intermediate products in and out of almost every spot on the planet. And that, that's the world that 
the West has been living in now since 1945, and that's the world that everyone has been living in since about 1990. So we've had two generations here of not having to worry about the stresses of supply or transport. Well, that's all going away now. So there really isn't any institutional knowledge in almost any part of the world for how to cope with the sort of environment that we're going into, or if you're a student of history, the sort of environment we're going back to. So there's a hunger for just understanding the baseline of how we got to where we are. Uh, and only once you understand that can you realize just how much of the system is vulnerable. And then the menu of options for what to do about it is just massive. Uh, and it's going to be different for every sector, for every country, for every region. And people are only now starting to come to grips with the size of the problem, uh, much less a solution. Throughout your books, you've, you've chronicled beautifully how we did get here. But, but when you have these conversations, can you kind of, in a nutshell, sum that up for us, how, how we did get there, which, is, which I, I think involves summarizing your entire written canon. But then it'll give us some kind of background that we can frame what happens from here, I think. Sure. Globalization was never about economics. Globalization was a, was a bribe. It was a security plan. Uh, when the Americans were emerging from World War II, we realized that we lacked the military capacity to even theoretically contain the Soviets without a whole lot of help. And that meant we needed help from countries that were a lot closer uh, and that were a lot more likely to bleed if there was a conflict. And so they had to be induced to side with us versus the Soviets. Globalization was the bribe. We would ensure that anyone's commerce could go anywhere at any time. And in exchange, America got the right to design everyone's security policies. And this is the foundation of NATO. This is the foundation of the alliances in the Pacific. This is everything that brought us to the world that we know that is relatively wealthy and relatively peaceable. But it was a bribe. The Americans did not internationalize their economy because then it would have just been another imperial overreach. So when the Americans started backing away from this system at the end of the Cold War, uh, all of a sudden, you had this thriving international market, but there was no one holding up the ceiling anymore. And 30 years on, the ceiling is collapsing. It's collapsing in China. It's collapsing in Ukraine and Russia. We're seeing breakdowns of the supply chains. And that's before you consider uh, the demographic implosion, which passed the point of no return what, 25 years ago now. Uh, so the, the very consumption model that we've always had assumes that there's just a large number of young workers and consumers in their 20s and their 30s. And that has not been true for quite some time. Demographic aging has gone so far that it's not that we're running out of children. In a lot of the world, that happened 30 years ago. Now we're running out of working age adults. And we don't even have an economic model that could theoretically cope with that. It's certainly not globalization, which is all about consumption. It's interesting. You, you take that you take the, the the period where the U.S. pulled away back to the end of the Cold War, which which I find really interesting because um, it seems like this has all happened very quickly, and a lot of people have kind of put it down to the last eight years of foreign policy in terms of stepping back. But but talk a little bit about about how the the pullback began and the, the kind of early signs of it post Cold War. So I think that'll catch a lot of people by surprise. Well, the pull down actually began with Reagan. There were some initial arms control deals that were done with the Soviets at the very tail end of the right. Reagan administration that he left it to the George Herbert Walker Bush administration to operationalize. 
And so we saw total force deployments in Europe drop by more than half in a very short period of time in the early 1990s. Uh, and then they continued to trend down for over a decade. Uh, over the course of the following 15 years, we saw our deployments outside of Germany, Korea, and Japan almost go to zero. And then we've seen some further reductions in those three core areas uh, in the 10 years since. The one exception, the one place that we put more troops, of course, was in the uh, Middle Eastern theater, specifically Iraq and Afghanistan. But as we all know, troops there are now under 1,000 total across the entire theater. Uh, so we actually, at the start of the Ukraine war, had fewer troops stationed abroad than since any time at any time since uh, Reconstruction in the late 1800s. We have never been this withdrawn. It's amazing. You know, I, when you read and hear stuff like that, it, it just doesn't seem to fit with the kind of narrative that's been maintained over all these years. The, the, the acceleration that, that seems to have happened in the last kind of couple of years, um, is that because of the rise of China? Is that coincidental? I mean, let, let's, let's go back to prior... To the Ukraine invasion, because we'll get onto that shortly. But but that acceleration has that just been optics, or has there been a factor that China has become more belligerent, has become more of a visible problem, and so that the acceleration that we've seen is perhaps down to realization of the situation we're in, given China's rise. Well, with the exception of Japan and Korea, which are very important exceptions, the United States has not had a significant military footprint in the East Asian theater since the Cold War. Uh, the biggest deployments, of course, were the Vietnam, Vietnam War, which eventually went to zero well before the Chinese rise, as well as the Philippines, which we, we closed out, I believe, in 1992 is when Subic was closed. Subic, yeah. So in terms of an American military footprint in East Asia, it's almost exclusively naval. And that, that really hasn't changed. And, you know, one of the beauties of naval deployments are you can move them. It's not like uh, the Army where you have to have a fixed point of placement. The Navy is mobile by definition. Uh, it's more to do with the changing nature of American power and American culture. Uh, with the Cold War over, Americans were done for a while. So we saw a steady redeployment. And since there were, was never an economic rationale for that deployment from our point of view, it was easy to make the case. I'd say a bigger factor, as opposed to China, would have been the rise of the shale revolution. First with natural gas around 2004, and then moving into the oil space around 2008 to 2009. That pushed the United States from a position where it did care at least tangentially about certain aspects of the international market because it was the world's oil importer, world's largest oil importer. But by the time we got to 2017, 2018, we were a net exporter of every sort of energy that there was. And most of that export stayed in the Western Hemisphere. Mexico became our single largest export market for energy. And then we swapped crude with the, the Canadians uh, because our refineries are tooled differently. Uh, the shale revolution allowed the United States to operationalize a lot of what was kind of in its cultural heart already, that we don't like to remain involved in an area with boots on the ground any longer than is necessary. The war on terror took on a life of its own, but even that closed after, I'm using air quotes here, only 20 years, which if you look at the imperial expansions of the past is practically a heartbeat. That whole time that this has been going on, where the U.S. has been shifting away from land-based long-term placements, we have improved the Navy's strike capability and concentrated it into the supercarrier battle groups. 
We now have 11 supercarriers, which constitute the vast, vast, vast supermajority of our military capacity in terms of projection power. But we don't have a lot of the smaller vessels that would be necessary to patrol the global oceans to keep commerce safe. So the United States has 11 very big hammers that it can use to overthrow governments it doesn't like or to intervene in uh, markets and shipping anywhere at once at, at, at the drop of a hat. But it does not any longer have a military capacity to look out for the world at large. And so if you've got a country that is disinterested and withdrawn and not linked in, but still has the hammer, uh, we have not seen American policy change to think of economic disruption as a viable policy yet. But as we're seeing with the Ukraine war, that's coming. So, so this, this, this use of economic sanctions as a, as a weapon, as opposed to kind of naval or military might, is fascinating, particularly given what happened when uh, the Russians went across that border back in February. Let's talk about how that has changed things, because it did come as a surprise. I think many people thought there's no way the Russians would, would do that. You were obviously, I guess at that point, pretty much finished with the books. And so that must have been, <laughs> that must have been a waking up one morning going, oh, okay, we're going to need at least another chapter. So, so talk a little bit about what the Russian incursion into Ukraine has changed and how it's changed the policies and the way that, that governments have to think about this in the new era. Well, let's start by saying that this war was always going to happen. This was not an issue of bad Western policy, although there has been a lot of bad Western policy. Uh, the Russians see the only way that they can survive is to control the gateway access territories that uh, link Western Europe, East Asia, and the Middle East to the European or to the Eurasian heartlands where they live. There are uh, nine of those gateways, and Ukraine has the unfortunate positioning of being on the way to two of the more important ones in Romania and Poland. So the Russians were always going to make this move. And Russian demographics are in a state of collapse. This was always going to be the last generation that the Russians were going to be able to field a mass military. So it was always going to happen, and it was probably always going to happen now. That obviously has woken a few people up to the idea that there is more to state power than ESG and managing uh, social issues. We're getting back to a, an environment that predominated before World War II, where hard power and the ability to maintain economic coherence was a far more important role for government than shaping societal norms. Uh, whether or not the United States makes that transition in whole remains to be seen. I have a feeling in Europe it's going to happen a lot faster and a lot harder because it has to. Uh, the Americans are dealing with a problem that is a continent away and on the other side of an ocean. For Europe, it's very much real and present. Uh, and that means you have to think differently. Traditionally, before 1945, before globalization, if you could not get an input for your system, whether it was food or iron ore or energy, you went out and you got it. You took it. And if you couldn't colonize, then you were likely to go to war with your neighbor. We haven't had to think about that. We haven't had to think that way right. in a very long time. And especially when it comes to Europe, the institutions that were responsible for that were either destroyed in the war or forcibly dismantled afterwards or transitioned to what we now recognize as social democracy. We now have to go in the other direction. 
And to be a leader in Europe in this time, it's just, it's got to be so jarring and borderline horrific because everything that you've struggled and fought for your entire professional life, all of a sudden is a rounding error uh, compared to the survival of states and economies and cultures. We're not used to thinking this way. No one is. And so the next several years, the rest of this decade are going to be incredibly traumatic because not everyone's going to make it. The country, of course, that I'm worried about the most right now is Germany, because it's not just about natural gas and electricity. Natural gas is the foundation for their entire petrochemical sector. And unlike most countries that then import petrochemical products, the Germans make them themselves. And then that is the foundation for their heavy and medium manufacturing. So if the natural gas really does go away, as it seems to be going, uh, this is the end of German manufacturing. And what does German society look like? when they know they won't have economic growth again, because that's the environment we are likely to be in before the end of the year. It's so interesting because Germany was always the powerhouse of Europe. And, and so to everybody was worried about Greece and Italy and Spain and Portugal being the, the problem children. But here we are with, a, with an unforeseen event happening and it's just completely turned everything upside down. And now the strong have become weak and the weak have remained weak. But when you talk about European leaders having to rethink things. I'm curious as to where do you think, and I want to talk more about Germany in detail in a second, because I think what you just said there is going to surprise a lot of people. But at a top level, the, the leaders in Europe, are they equipped for this kind of a, a rethinking? Because the, the European project, European dream has been such a strong rallying cause for everybody through every kind of crisis we've seen. They've pulled together and, and the unity of Europe and the European dream has transcended every other idea that they've had to try and push through and problem they've had to deal with. Are they equipped to deal with the world you've just outlined where individual countries may not make this and the, the chance of Europe holding together, not purely because of monetary problems, but because of, of, of geographical and, and border problems? Have they got this in them, do you think, or is this going to be a huge problem? <laughs> well, it's Europe, so there's never a simple answer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Some countries are going to do better than others, uh, part of because they've, to a degree, prepared for this, part because they never changed their systems away from the old ways before globalization, and then others are absolutely hosed. So, you know, we can put Germany in a box for now and come back and look at it, what it looks like when a first world country is utterly hosed and is likely to die. Uh, on the flip side, you've got France, which the Americans saw globalization as a bribe to fight a global conflict. The French identified with that. The idea that you would sublimate economic interests in order to achieve a broader strategic goal, that's very French. So while the French will continue to push for national prestige and power within the European Union, and that's going to continue to annoy pretty much everyone, uh, they are actually fairly set up culturally and in terms of leadership to make this transition. They never bet on Europe and the Euro to the degree that most of the other European countries did. Right. Because they have always seen the European Union, like the United States, saw globalization. It was a tool. It was a policy. It was not our future. And so they aren't going to fall as far. Uh, in terms of countries that are a little bit more prepared or at least more realistic about what is happening, Sweden, Finland, Poland. I mean, here are the countries that are providing the most support to the Ukrainians because they realize that once the Ukrainians fall, and they likely will, they are next because they control or are approximate to a lot of those gateway territories that the Russians feel they absolutely have to have. 
So anything that pushes the war or keeps the war away, pushes the war away or keeps the war away from Europe's borders, for them is an absolute must because otherwise they will be the ones fighting the Russians next. Brussels has really surprised. Now there's something to be said that a crisis tends to focus minds. And every time that Europe has had a crisis, they've ended up with more Europe, not less. Uh, they are taking advantage of the situation to a certain degree. And we've seen more pushes towards meaningful solidarity in the last six months than we have in most of the last 25 years. Is it enough? No. But it's a start. And if you had asked me in January if I thought Europe was going to survive the decade, I would have laughed and said, of course not. They've got demographic collapse. They're going to lose all of their markets from globalization. They're going to lose access to the resources that they need to make everything work. But for the first time in the European project, in the European project, there seems to be this sense in Brussels, not that it's a power grab, not that we've been waiting for this crisis, but that Brussels is the only institution on the continent that actually might be able to have the tools to do something about this. And if they can deliver, that is going to move the needle politically in every European country. It's still a long shot, but it's no longer ridiculous to think that Europe might actually finally make it work. What, what does that look like? Because I, I'm curious as to understand what Brussels can do and what a Europe that quote-unquote survives looks like and how it differs from the Europe we see today. Well, I'd say three big things. Number one, national vetoes on not just foreign policy, but everything need to go away. The combined European Union has to be able to outvote France and Germany. So you 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 excise German decision making for the last 20 years, which has been beyond wretched, and French grandstanding, and you allow the rest of Europe to plot a course. Does it mean that those two big countries don't matter anymore? Of course not. But the idea that they can unilaterally steer Europe, that has to die if this is going to work. Uh, number two, you need at least a $30 trillion program to expand energy infrastructure throughout the European Union so that you can shuttle electricity and natural gas about. That is a 10-year project minimum. That is something that probably should have been started back in 2005. And that is the only way that Europe, most of Europe remains industrialized in a post-Ukraine war environment. They have to bring in be able to bring in liquefied natural gas from multiple points. They have to be able to link up old coal plants to fuel or to electrify systems that are a thousand miles removed. And they have to be able to have an energy policy that embraces absolutely every source of energy in every country because the alternative is rolling blackouts like we're starting to see in Germany now. Third, and this is one that's going to really stick in a lot of craws, we need... We need a European empire. And I'm going to use little e on empire. Uh, big, <laughs> Probably a good job. <laughs> yes. Uh, because Europe cannot function if it's just Europe. They do not have the resources they need to keep the lights on. I don't care what you think about green tech. It doesn't work at scale. Not in Europe. So you need to link into North Africa. And you probably need to link into the Persian Gulf as well. And that is going to require a far more muscular foreign and especially military policy than we have ever thought of when we thought of Europe. So if Europe is going to remain industrialized, and as we define the term civilized, it has to impress its will on a swath of territory that allows it to get the inputs that it needs to maintain that system. The U.S. isn't going to do that for them. Only Europe can do it for Europe. 
This is fascinating because that that ten year project um, that you spoke about absolutely makes sense, and, and clearly from what we've seen in the last six months or so it is absolutely vital. But how does Europe survive in the meantime? Because the the, the turning back on of coal fired plants is a no no, and we and even the nuclear stuff is but it's struggling with. Yeah, it's happening marginally, but you, we haven't seen the kind of pushback yet. I'm, I'm just curious as to how you think they get through that 10 years, given the demographic problems, the, the political problems, the environmental problems. It just seems such a stretch for me. Well, let, let's start with the biggest complication, and that's the goalpost. What do we define as success? We're moving into an environment where the majority, this decade, the majority of Germans are going to be retired. It was like their day as an industrial powerhouse was already ending the, uh, between COVID and especially now the Ukraine war. It's, it's speeding things up. Italy is, an, is only marginally better, and a lot of the Western European countries are only a few years behind, and a lot of the Central European countries are only a decade behind. So the economic and cultural model that we have been using for the last 500 years is in its final years right now. So defining what success is is very difficult because we've never been in this environment before. But you have to keep the electricity flowing. So yes, coal has to come back in a very, very big way. Uh, Nuclear in terms of new plants is not an option. It takes too long. But once the French get their system sorted out, they're having a lot of technical issues right now. They can be absolutely part of the process uh, and part of the solution, no argument. A lot of the money that has been dedicated to green tech in terms of power generation in Northern Europe has been wasted. Europe, especially Germany, is neither sunny nor windy. And if you do away with the Enron-style accounting gimmicks that the Germans specifically have been using, they only generate about 8 to 10% of their electricity from, from solar and wind. And that's heavily concentrated in August when the Germans are on vacation. So it's really just been a two trillion euro suck. But their efforts to expand their grid to shift electricity around the country based on where the power is coming from at every given moment, that was a solid idea. And they need a European grid that does that at scale. Until it's up, get used to brownouts, get used to rolling blackouts get used to an evisceration of long-term competitiveness. You're looking at structural damage to the economic models of most of the European countries. And that means recasting what success means. Anyone who once had a vision that Europe could be a global leader, I mean, that, that ideal was always pie in the sky and now it's dead in the ground. This is now getting down to the issues of systemic survival for national demographics and identities. Uh, And unfortunately, that means a lot of people are going to have to think very, very differently. We're going to have some of this in the United States too. But the United States, because it produces all of its own food and energy and almost all of its own fertilizer, the goalposts don't have to move. It's going to be a lot more familiar of a situation. Americans, of course, will overly freak about it because that's what we do. But we don't have any of the bedrock challenges that the Europeans are facing. Let's take Germany out of that box then. Because um, you're listening to this, it's, it's so fascinating potentially just how quickly Germany can go from the powerhouse holding Europe together to the problem at its core that needs to be sorted out. So, so how, how does that affect the policy lens through which European leaders have to view Europe now? And how does that affect 
Germans because that's not a position they're used to being in, and it's going to come at them pretty hard and fast by the sound of things. Let's start with the changes that we knew were inevitable and imminent before the war. Germany is one of the fastest aging societies in human history. Uh, they now have more people in their 60s than their 50s, than their 40s, than their 30s, than their 20s, than their teens and children. And that is a terminal demographic. So we already knew going into this that the German nation was not going to survive this century. The question is what happens on the way out. There are a lot of countries that are in that position. Uh, the Italians are in it, the Russians are in it, the Chinese are in it. So this was always going to be a transition century, if you will, between a world that had been following more or less the same economic models for a half a millennia to something fundamentally different. In the case of Germany, the flip point was always going to be this decade. And that meant that German demographics were going to make German manufacturing probably not economically viable on their own. One of the things that a lot of people, especially in the United States, don't understand is the degree to which German manufacturing is not a one-country show. It is very heavily integrated with not just Belgium and Austria and the Netherlands, but also countries that were part of the former Soviet system, especially Poland, Slovakia, and Hungary, Czech Republic too. Uh, their demographics are only about 10 years behind the Germans. So we already had a structural challenge pointed at the heart of the system that we knew was a death blow. That was already coming. German manufacturing has been very successful for three reasons. Number one is the access to what has been, until now, a perfect demographic moment. If you've got a lot of Germans and Czechs and others that are in their 50s that don't have a lot of kids, it pushes down the relative cost of labor, and that labor is very productive. Second, the European Union has allowed for frictionless transport among the system. So you kind of get the best aspects of NAFTA without a lot of the political overhang because it's like kind of built into the, the European treaties. But third was always Russian energy. Russian energy is cheap. It has been provided without interruption since shortly after uh, Vietnam. And the Germans don't have what we in the United States consider to be a traditional system. So here... There's a lot of inputs that come from a lot of places. There's independent supply chains that fly back and forth around the country and sometimes cross borders. But there's no one who has kind of a set privileged access to any of it. It's all in the open market. In Germany, once the energy reaches the German infrastructure, it's processed by German companies and then sold on long-term contracts to other German companies. So energy turns into energy processing, turns into heavy industry, turns into manufacturing. It's all kept in-house. It's very incestuous. But that means if you knock off that bit right at the beginning, the energy inflows, you lose the base of the entire manufacturing supply chain for the entire German economy. And German economics to this point have been based on the inviability of trade, that the idea that you could never challenge it, that it will always be sacrosanct within the European system and in the globalized system, that's no longer the case. The Germans are going to have to come up with a fundamentally new economic model if they are to survive as a state. They've done this before. Most of us didn't like what they decided upon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's extraordinary. These demographic shifts are telegraphed so far in advance. And, and, and a similar thing happened with Japan, obviously. We all knew the point, 2015, at which the Japanese population was going to start to decline for 30-plus years, 40 years maybe. 
And yet it came and went and nobody seemed to be able to grasp how big it was and it always seemed further away. It's like, um, I don't know if you're a Monty Python fan, but the scene in The Holy Grail where the two guards are standing by the door and John Cleese is charging towards them with a, with a spear and he's a long way away and then it cuts back to the guards and then he's a bit closer and it cuts back to the guards and then he's a long way away again and it cuts back to the guards and he just jumps and stabs them both. And mm-hmm. it, that's the way I always view this, these demographic cliffs is that they, they always seem so far away until they were yesterday and then people suddenly go, the hell are we going to do? So when you when you look at Germany, um, this their own demographic cliff has has come up so fast, and it it seems to have caught everybody by surprise, which I which I struggle to understand. But again, you know, we have we have a a set of leaders in Europe who just don't seem to me to be capable of managing this shift from Germany as powerhouse to Germany as potentially kind of the the person we have to prop up under our arms and help them limp off the battlefield. Are there any leaders in fringe European states, are there any countries in fringe European states which are going to be forced to step up and are capable of doing so? You're probably not going to like the answer. (laughs) I'm going to love the answer. I love all your answers because they get me thinking about everything. Francis Macron is the only option. Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like... Uh, and he might not even be an option anymore because of what happened in the recent um, parliamentary elections, yeah. and regional elections. He, he's not the, uh, the the Jupiter that he once was. Uh, but I would argue that if 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 this is going to work, the only way <laughs> is you have to have a political system where the Germans and the French can be overruled. But you also have to have a European leader, and I'm talking here about a new office, a European presidency that actually matters, uh, who is able to have a vision for what this could be. That's not going to come out of Bulgaria. Uh, And you have to do it in five years. So we're having an international crisis right now. It is mobilizing people. It is forcing people to think very differently. But for Europe to survive, it has to be able to take from the haves and give to the have-nots at scale. And it has to be able to punish countries that can't or won't cooperate at scale. And that means you have to have someone in place who can tell the Germans to suck it up at the same time they tell the Greeks to suck it up. So you already know which two blocks it can't come from. can't come from Southern Europe. It can't come from what we traditionally think is the Northern core. It's got to come from a country that has size. It has to come from a country that is not facing these existential crises. And France is the only one. Fascinating. Do you think this is going to be doable? Because in no, the normal... No, in I the normal, I mean, okay. but, I was going to say, because if, yeah, if you had asked me back in January, I would have laughed. Today, right, it's right. not completely ridiculous. But it, but it's it's clearly necessary. But but I wonder, you know, the, the, the traditional way that these things go when when countries are struggling internally, as everybody is with the return of inflation, and politically with the kind of the, the, the splintering of political direction in further apart from each other. Um, normally, the, the, the fingers get pointed externally to other countries. And so taking from the haves and the have-nots within your own country is potentially doable. There are ways to do that. But taking from your own haves and giving them to the have-nots of another country in Europe at a time where you know, stresses and tensions are on a domestic level are so strong, just seems to me like I, I, I really struggle to see how that would be doable. Oh, no, I agree with you completely. And to give you the, the one historical example that I think is most relevant here, uh, that's the United States. 
the United States has has long had a stronger sense of self uh, than a lot of the European countries. I mean, we think of ourselves, the world thinks of us as a new country, but if you look at the constitutional order of the United States, it's the second oldest on the planet. We fought a civil war over this issue. That's what it took for us to decide on federal supremacy. I hope it doesn't come to that in Europe. I don't think it will, but I'm also more than a little dubious that the Europeans can make it work without a much larger shock than what we're seeing right now. Right. Let's bring Russia into the mix now then, because obviously the last time you and I spoke, they'd basically just gone into Ukraine. And uh, you laid out beautifully why it was at some point inevitable that they would be forced to do this because of the constraints they have in terms of protecting their borders from Europe across the plains. So let's talk about how the war has played out and how it's evolved and how your thinking around it has perhaps shifted or, or hardened over those last several months. And then talk about where Russia fits in to this, this need for Europe to come together at a time when Russia is dividing them more by the day, it seems. The Russians know that this is their last, this is their last real war. They don't have the population to do another one in five or 10 years. So they're going to push as hard as they can on this one. And if they fail to control those access points at the end of it, then Russia probably dies within 20 years. Europe will very rapidly evolve from a situation of being terrified of Russian strength to being terrified of Russia's collapse. And these are perfectly reasonable things to be terrified of. But for now... The numbers are definitely on the Russian side. They've got the troops in theater. They've got more that they can mobilize. They've got 60 years of Soviet stockpiling that they're drawing upon. And the supply chains that are keeping the Ukrainians in the fight are already running dry. The West in general, and the United States in specific, does not fight set peace emplacements over long fronts. We use air power and we use precision strikes to eliminate logistics centers, command and control centers, fuel depots, ammo depots, that sort of thing. The whole idea is to prevent the other side from even fielding a reasonable military. And you don't do that with six weeks of training. You do that with years of training. So the sorts of equipment that we use regularly, we can't provide to the Ukrainians. It would take too long. We have to provide them with what they can use. And that's why we're seeing tanks. That's why we're seeing javelins. That's why we're seeing stingers. The problem is, is the sort of equipment we can provide, those relatively low-tech items, we don't have a lot of because we don't use them ourselves. So we're probably about halfway through our Stinger and our Javelin stockpiles at the moment, and we are definitely going to run dry in the fourth quarter of this year. So for the Ukrainians to not be obliterated, a couple things have to happen. Number one, the Ukrainians have to recapture both Kyrgyzstan and uh, Mariupol. If they can do that, they trap the bulk of Russian forces in a giant pocket in southern Ukraine and in Crimea, and then take out one bridge, the Kerch Bridge, which supply is the sole rail line from Russia proper into these occupied territories. Then you're looking at a million Russian deaths in a relatively short period of time. And Russia fights until Russia can't. It has never withdrawn from a war with more than a half a million battlefield deaths. And we are only to maybe 10% of that now. So that sort of double isolation, turning Crimea into a pocket, that is how you might, theoretically might, force the Russians to, to back off. But that has to be done before the Ukrainians run out of weapons. And that means it has to be done in the next four months. 
I don't know if that's possible. They're making a good push on Kirsten right now. That's a great first step, but it in and of itself, that's not enough. Which suggests to me that we're going to have a collapse in the Ukrainian position this year. And then this will turn from a, a war that is relatively static with artillery to the Russians in relatively short order occupying most of the country. And then we get a large-scale partisan conflict. That's a different kind of conflict. That's also one the United States is not well prepared to, and the NATO countries are not well prepared to support. But the Ukrainians have shown that they are tenacious, that they are smart, they are dedicated, and that they are brave, and they will fight. And they will fight for a good long time. And until such time that the Russians feel they have sufficiently pacified Ukraine, we don't have to worry about the next stage of the war. So let's let's go forward in time 20 years, if we can, uh, purely from a demographic perspective. What does Europe and... Um, and Central Asia, let's, let's bring Russia into that. What does it look like at that point? I mean, I guess there are two, potentially two very, very different outcomes for that. But w w what's your best guess about handicapping what that part of the world looks like? Well, assuming for the moment that no one is able to genius up a new economic model that works when you have more retired people than you have workers. And, you know, I have no idea what that would look like. I mean, it took us 400 years to come up with capitalism and socialism and communism and fascism in, in their current forms. It'll I be an ism. We know that Likely much. we're going to figure this out in 20 yeah. years. Countries kind of fall into two general buckets for the aging, for the ones that are terminal. Uh, there's the ones where the birth rate reductions came hard, came fast, and they never looked back. That's your Italy's, that's your Germany's. And then there's others where it's instead of just a straight collapse in birth rate, sometimes it ebbed and flowed. That would suggest that um, the drop in birth rate wasn't simply because of a fast urbanization and industrialization, but it was instead because of other factors, uh, political mismanagement, for example. Maybe there was an agricultural failure. Maybe there was a war. Uh, Russia falls into that category. Poland falls into that category. And ironically, the countries that have suffered the more tragic histories because of famines and wars that also means that they've also not just had birth rate collapses, but also birth rate booms over the years. And so they've got a little bit more staying power than those that just decided one day to pick up and move into the cities and live in an apartment and not have any kids. So by the time we get to 2040, 2045, it's going to be over for Romania, Bulgaria, Germany, Italy. I don't know what they're going to look like, but the idea that they can feel the military or have sufficient resources to educate a skilled workforce, I think is beyond impossible. Then you'll have the dying of the light in that other group, your, your Polands, your Finlands, your Russias, where there has been more, positive's the wrong word, more erratic birth rates. And so it's not as fast of a collapse. But even here, you're talking about a complete economic dislocation. You're talking about a situation that is far will be far worse than Japan is today. And Japan is an island, and Japan has outsourced most of its manufacturing, and Japan has been one of only a handful of countries to solidify a long-term strategic and economic alliance with the United States, so they have other options. Most of these countries don't. And around those countries are a handful of states that either never suffered the demographic decline, or it's much slower so your Sweden's, your Norway's, uh, Denmark, the Netherlands, France, they look decent. I mean, they don't look great, but they're not flirting with imminent demographic collapse and they can continue on. They're aging, but they're aging relatively gently. And so you get a new definition of what Europe 
means. Now, how you play that across the Ukraine war, there are a lot of countries that are going to have to make a lot of very hard decisions in the next 18 months. Germany is the one we've gone, gone into in detail in the most. But this questions like that are going to plague most of Europe. And how they decide to reshape or attempt to reshape their systems in a time of war is going to determine a lot about the European space moving forward. And no one in Europe has had to think this way since 1945. Yeah. What, what happens to the UK in this scenario? Uh, I, by the 2040s, the UK will probably still be debating what Brexit is. <laughs> Honestly, at the rate you're going, dear God. Um, with every day that Brexit is not settled, and yes, yes, I know that the UK has already pulled out and that is done, but the, the UK still hasn't figured out what's next. The, the trade deals that need to be negotiated haven't been. The economic restructuring that needs to be done hasn't been started. And with every day that those decisions are pushed back, getting a deal that is beneficial to Britain is going to be that much harder. And so from the American point of view, this is kind of the best case scenario. There's only three countries in our history that have ever threatened us. One is Mexico. We beat them in a war and now they're our best friends. One is Russia. They threaten us with nuclear weapons. And now we see an opportunity with the Ukraine war to really to just end them. And the last is the UK, our former colonial master, our parents. And we are very close to a situation where the only option for the UK is to accede to whatever demands the Americans demand and basically move in with the kids. Now, whether that happens in the form of a very deep trade relationship that is very imbalanced or something that is more akin to statehood, that is a political decision to be made in England, not Scotland, not Wales, England. That's where the votes are. That's where this is going to be decided one way or another. But you have to figure out Brexit first. Yeah, we'll, we'll get around to it, Peter. Don't worry. Don't worry. We'll work on it. We'll work on it. So, so let me ask you uh, on a broader broader scope where does inflation fit into all this because oh okay. it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it yeah because it, it obviously any potential way out of this you have is complicated massively by the return of inflation so, so talk a bit about how you factor inflation into your thinking around all these um, geo geopolitical issues inflation globally and especially for the american and the european systems has had four big trends since world war ii First, we had the initial big industrialization boom that was half industrialization and in Europe, half uh, war rebuilding. Putting that down asphalt and concrete, building skyscrapers, running electricity in the countryside, everyone basically being brought into the modern age. Very inflationary, and in the 1950s and the 1960s, that's definitely borne out in the data. Then we had this non-standard demographic transition. We had a baby boom throughout the Western world right after the war, and they have defined our economic existence ever since. So as the baby boomers came of age, they started having kids and buying homes. That was very inflationary. Then in the 1980s, they became more mature. They, uh, their kids were moving out, and they were investing. That generated a huge investment boom that made the tech boom possible. And now they're retiring. And when you retire, you liquidate your investments and you go into relatively risk-free investments because you won't be able to survive a currency crash or a market crash. Those first two trends have now flipped. We know we need to expand our industrial plant because we're losing access to the pre-existing globalized systems. That's inflationary. The baby boomers are moving into mass retirement. 
that's deflationary in Europe, but inflationary in the United States because in the United States, the baby boomers actually had kids. So we've got this group that we call millennials that are a pain in the ass in every way, but there's a lot of them and they're in their spending prime right now. So we already have a big split between Europe when it comes to those two trends. Third, Soviet Union collapsed in, the, in 1992 and they dumped an empire of resources onto the market, whether it was wood or natural gas or oil. That's now all going away. So we go from having one of the strongest disinflationary trends in history to one of the strongest inflationary, and it's happening at the snap of fingers. And then finally, we've got China. A billion Chinese workers joined the, uh, the global labor force in the late 80s and early 90s. That pushed down the cost of manufacturing goods for 30 years. That's now over. As bad as demographics are in Germany, they are far, far worse in China. And this was also going to be China's last decade, assuming nothing else happens first. Other things seem to be happening first. So we lose that disinflationary pulse. So all of these trends that were relatively beneficial and generated a lot of growth or kept inflation under control, they're all flipping and all at the same time. And we're doing it in a period where we're losing access to the base commodities that make everything else possible. So we have to decide winners and losers. If you do this democratically, the retirees win because there's more of them. But that guarantees the death of economics in a much shorter period of, of time. So the question is whether or not national leaderships can find a way around it. In the United States, we are lucky in that we've got the global currency. And as much as we've been expanding our monetary base, it's nothing compared to what the other economies of the world have been doing. So at least dirty shirt, if you will. We have the option of printing currency at volume for a long period of time before we hit any sort of real stress point. The Japanese have indicated over the last 30 years that we could probably have a national debt in the United States at least double of what it is today before we face any real pressure. Europe doesn't have that option. Europe's a hard currency, and Europe doesn't have the capacity to expand its monetary base in the same way because it's not the global exchange of value. And in the aftermath of the financial crisis in 08, its presence in international markets shrank to very little. So changes in how the European system manages its monetary policy can generate outsized impacts on the living standards of everyone in Europe in a very short period of time. And of course, there's always the question, if, you know, let's say you expand the monetary base by $5 trillion, who gets that? Is it the Germans? Because they're the ones who need it today. Is it the Southern Europeans? Because they're the ones that are most in debt. Or is it the French? Because they're the ones who can likely do something productive with it. These are hard decisions. I don't see how they can be made democratically. Yeah, no, I agree. It, it seems to be uh, a fairly intractable problem at, at this stage. But let me ask you, the inflation conundrum, all the talk seems to be around the effect that interest rates are going to have on inflation. Um, and talking to you and understanding things to my limited capacity, it seems to me that the problems we have here and the, and the driving forces behind inflation really have nothing to do with interest rates. Do, do you think that any of these policies that central banks are talking about at this level, I mean, fine, if they get interest rates up to the kind of levels they really need to be at, maybe they will have an effect. But it seems to me that no matter what they do here, there are far bigger problems that are going to be stoking the fuel of inflation for some considerable time. I'm a very mixed minds on that. Uh, let, let's start with the classical argument 
that higher interest rates give the Fed more tools, which is true, and that the Fed would love to be at 4% or higher by the end of the year, which I think is something that they've been thinking for the last seven years, uh, that they've, they just know that this accommodative policy has outlived its usefulness. And the question is, how do you pull back without a recession? Now that a recession is likely for a mix of reasons, part COVID, part Trump, part Biden, part Obama, part Russia, part China, all kinds of things that the Fed can't control. There seems to be an, a feeling building in the Fed that if a recession is going to happen anyway, we might as well get our toolkit back. And it's hard for me to find fault with that argument. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, use the cover where you can get it. So that's kind of piece one. Uh, piece two, demographics. A lot of the world has already aged out or is in the process of aging out right now. And ultimately, interest rates are a tool designed to regulate consumption. If you're aged out and you don't have a lot of young people, there's not a lot of consumption to regulate. And so the interest rates, that tool in the toolbox is no longer appropriate for most places. Now, in the United States, where we are aging the most gently of all the major countries, and where we have the millennials, the relationship between consumption and interest rates still holds. And so, again, it makes a degree of sense to raise rates here. Everywhere else, though, it is not a demand problem. It's a supply problem. And raising rates doesn't do much for that at all. If anything, it might choke off the investment that is needed to build alternate supply systems. Uh, so there's that. Third, the rules are changing. Globalization, which is, historically speaking, the most atypical economic model we've ever had is dying. And the demographic picture means that a lot of these relationships between the tools we've developed and what we're targeting no longer apply. I can't say that not raising interest rates is the right idea. I can't say that raising interest rates is the right idea. I'm saying that we don't even know where the goalposts are on this conversation. And we're not going to figure it out this year or next year. So there are times in history where I think of myself as really smart. And, you know, if I was in charge here or there or then, that I could have done so much better than the people who were making the decisions. I do not feel that way right now. Yeah, because I, 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 I'm constantly that way. <laughs> Just that everything that we thought of as true and everything that has been true for 70 years is not necessarily true anymore. And we're not on the other side of the transition. We're in the transition. So even if we had the perfect tool for the moment, it's probably not going to be a good tool 10 years from now. And even if we can envision what a post-demographic crash world looks like and can imagine the tools that would work then, they wouldn't work now because we're not there yet. So I can't think of a more difficult operating environment for leadership, whether it's at the Fed or the White House or in Brussels or in Whitehall or wherever it happens to be, than where we are right now. Change is hard. And change on this scale with this depth, wow. Well, you don't need to worry about Whitehall. There aren't any leaders there, so that's that's fine. That's, <laughs> that's a spirit. Avoid them. But um, okay, so listen. Just before we before we wrap up, I've, I've left China to last because I wanted to get this general sense of the world and where we stood and where the, the, the challenges were before we got to China. So let's finish up with a look at China. Obviously, ahead of the October meetings of the Communist Party, where do they sit right now? Obviously, their COVID policy has had a lot of people scratching their heads. A lot of people claiming that it's. It's really an attempt to screw up global supply chains and put pressure on the West, as opposed to some kind of draconian lockdown. With the China right now, given Xi's position of authority, certainly looks to me outside at least to be 
more under scrutiny, let's call it, let's be charitable, under scrutiny that it has been for some considerable time. They've got a plenary coming up in October. When you look at China, what do you see in terms of constraints and, and, and in terms of potential thorns in their side? China's facing many, many of the same structures that we've just talked about with yeah. Europe. Uh, their demographics are beyond terminal. Uh, and with some of the data revisions that we've seen come out in the last couple of months, it suggests that by 2050, there may be fewer than 650 million Chinese. And the vast, vast majority of them will be retired. So in terms of their current economic model, this is the end right now. They won't have the workforce beyond this decade to cope. And that assumes no crisis in anything else. And there are plenty of crises and other things. Um, the lockdowns don't surprise me at all. And not just because China has a draconian dictatorship. Uh, and so it is a viable policy option for them. They really didn't have a choice. Uh, Omicron B is more lethal than the previous variants. And the Chinese vaccine doesn't work against Omicron B at all. So their choice was to open the floodgates and deal with literally millions of deaths a month or lock down to keep COVID numbers under control. So this, this is not anything that, from my point of view, was a shock. And it's purely driven by domestic considerations. I don't think any relationships with the West, whether political, strategic, or economic, or otherwise, factored into the, the decision-making one iota. And this is going to remain the policy in China until such time that they have a domestically generated vaccine that they can apply in mass. Considering the speed with which COVID evolves, I do not have any confidence that, that will happen in the next three years. With mRNA technology, the United States has finally, finally changed its vaccine approval laws to make it follow more or less what we do for the flu shot. So the vaccine manufacturers can guess which variant is going to be dominant. They adjust their manufacturing for that. And three to six months later, we get the shot. We're going to have that this fall for Omicron. The Chinese won't. And the Chinese have not figured out mRNA at this point. So until they do, there's still a two-year delay. So this sort of disruptions that we have seen in the last six months in the Chinese manufacturing system, you should consider this the normal and really the best case scenario for at least the next few years. That assumes we don't have an energy crisis. We are having an energy crisis because as the Russian energy falls off the European market, the Europeans are going to get their energy from somewhere else. A lot of that stuff specifically in former European colonies in Africa right now is going to China. It won't much longer. That's part of the whole European empire, little e, transition that we're seeing in Europe right now. The Chinese ability to tap a world full of raw materials to keep their system going, that is ending too. That's another death blow to their manufacturing sector. And that assumes that there's not going to be a food crisis. And there's going to be a food crisis. Now, again, we know about the wheat coming out of Ukraine and Russia and how that's being compromised. But China has its own homegrown crisis now. In the aftermath of African swine fever, the Chinese saw the devastation of their agricultural system for animal protein, and they rebuilt it with people who didn't know what it was doing, they were doing. So another wave of African swine fever to, that's going to probably wipe out their pork for the second time is probably already starting. That just leaves rice. Well, the Chinese are the world's largest exporter and producer of phosphate, but now they need to keep it all at home to make their one crop that they can control, rice, still function. So we're getting these intersecting crises that are building across the European space, the Russian space, the Chinese space. And the Western Hemisphere just looks great. 
because that's where a lot of these resources come from. That's where a lot of them are processed. And you've got the North American consumption model on top of that with a, a healthier demographic in the Western Hemisphere by far. So we're seeing this hiving a part of the system. And if there was one country that was completely dependent on everything working with clockwork precision in order to get imports in or products in, I'm sorry, raw commodities and energy products in and finished products out, that's China. So China is by far the country that has the most to suffer here and is by far the most vulnerable. Yeah, it's, I think uh, I think the, the China situation is probably worthy of a conversation all itself another time, Peter, because it's um, it's something you've again written so well about in previous books, and once again in the end of the world, it's just the beginning. So let's save that and maybe dig into that another time. Um, in the meantime, let me thank you for giving me so much of your time. It's always yeah, it's funny I, when I when I talk to you, I hear myself in my questions. I'm still processing all the things you've given me in the previous answer, and I can hear in my voice how much you make my head spin, but I love every minute of these conversations because they really get me thinking. And and so my thanks to you for that. Just let everybody know, I will do so again myself, but let people know the best places, the best ways to follow you because, um, as I say, your work is absolutely phenomenal. And I I hope if anyone isn't already following it, we can uh, convert a few more to the cause. Absolutely. So uh, zeihan.com slash newsletter is where you can sign up for the newsletter and the video logs. They're free. They will always be free. Uh, and if you're interested in more on China and Germany specifically and like structurally where they are, the previous book, Disunited Nations, is probably the best starting point. Fantastic. Listen, I will, I will go out my way to plug the books as hard as I possibly can without annoying people for you because I think, uh, <laughs> as I said, that, that each one is a, is a fantastic read in its own right. But as a series, they really do give a phenomenal um, background and grounding in all the stuff that, that matters now but it's going to matter an awful lot more going forward. So, Peter, thanks so much uh, for the time. Enjoy your holiday, and um, we'll talk again soon, I hope. My pleasure. Until then. Thanks, Peter. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, as promised, Peter delivered. You know, that was just such a fascinating conversation. As I said, you know, I, I can hear my brain trying to process the previous answer to the previous question as I'm trying to frame the next one. It's it's just head-spinningly um, challenging to try and get our arms around all this. So my thanks to Peter for trying to help us. Now, these demographic and political changes facing the world are absolutely going to require a complete and radical rethinking of the global order. And I thought Peter just laid out the extent not only of the problems facing those world leaders, but the ways in which they're likely to change pretty much everything we thought we knew about the world. I'm going to be thinking about that conversation for a long time to come as I try and wrap my head around what changes of this magnitude might mean. As Peter said, you will find all his work at Zion.com, Z-E-I-H-A-N. He's active on Twitter, uh, so follow him there if you don't already. You'll find him at Peter Zion. And I'll plug his books one more time because they really are superb. The End of the World is Just the Beginning is his latest. But uh, as Peter said, Disunited Nations is a really strong primer for what we talked about. So stick them both next to your bed and dig in. That's all from me. My thanks to you, as always, for listening and for subscribing to the Grant Williams podcast. I'll be back again with another conversation pretty soon. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.